Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad. Yeah, wrong. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. Okay, welcome to another Come Get Some Extra Scientology edition today uh, on a Thursday special edition because tomorrow is the 100th episode of the combined effort of Come Get Some and Come Get Some Extra. Uh, 100th episode live, 12 p.m. Eastern noon. Um, I, I don't know what to expect tomorrow because, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. <sighs> so a lot going on. Um, I don't know where to start. Uh, I start with racism. Do I start with fucking rapists? Do I start with uh, what do I start with? How about I just wrap it all in together? I can do that. Um, just imagine our fucked up world where it is today, our fucked up president, and this fucked up racist thing, right? If, uh, imagine that Donald Trump says, we're going to replace that statue of old General Lee down south with a statue of Hitler to celebrate and fight bigotry and hatred and unify this once great country. How fucked up and backwards would that be? Uh, not that I can't imagine it not happening right now. Well, here we have people like Michael Pena saying stand with Danny Masterson in the face of hate and bigotry and Leah Remedy Scientology and Aftermath. And I couldn't be more physically ill thinking about this. And I said on social media, I, I will stand by Danny Masterson and watch him get handcuffed and taken to prison. Uh, I, I don't believe that that there could be so much abuse like what we heard about Tuesday night on Scientology in the aftermath. So much physical and sexual abuse and so many known cases like this. So many rapists. And the way you fucking fight because because we know this lady. We know this lady was molested by her father. It's it's practically public record anymore. Everybody knows. They know. We know. Everybody knows what happened. And you fight it by saying stand by Sir Rapes a lot, Danny Masterson? Fuck you. What the hell? What the hell is that? It makes me stick to my stomach. And and it makes a, a lot of things more difficult uh, to, to stomach about this whole fucking narrative. I, I don't know how, how this doesn't just end now with this shit. Okay. All right. So, so this this reminds me of 
tomorrow. I've been doing this show for coming up tomorrow on a hundred episodes. And and uh a great chunk of those hundred episodes well, almost the majority anymore is on this subject, the subject of Scientology. Um, anybody who's listened to me any length of time, anybody who's gotten to know me in any way knows I wear my heart on my sleeve. So um, I don't just give myself to a topic or give myself to, to any calls lightly. And uh, and I've dove right into this whole anti-Scientology thing. And I've never ever in my life focus so much on any cause and uh and i've pretty much committed so hard to this and it takes a lot of time and uh with 100 episodes coming up uh with 100 episodes coming up i spent a lot of the last week and a half reflecting on uh why i started a podcast to begin with which had nothing to do with with race or homosexuality or bullying or terrorism or or suicide awareness, or spousal abuse, or Scientology it had nothing to do with any of this stuff, and it was all about uh, something very different. And uh, between that and covering Scientology, uh, I've kind of lost sight of what I'm trying to do, and I've lost sight of uh, of things at home. And uh, something I don't know what it is yet. But something about how I'm handling doing this podcast has to change. I've changed my mind about five times in the last four days. So who knows? Uh, but tomorrow um, tomorrow live on this show, on the 100th episode, I will address the future of uh, come get some and come get some extra. In the meantime, I have a very important interview for you today with Glenda Smith, former rep for the CCHR. And uh, I think you're going to like her a lot. I know I do. Here it is. Okay, uh, today on the show I have somebody who spent a good amount of time with the uh, Citizens Commission for Human Rights, uh, CCHR, a Scientology-founded foundation against Scientology, and I can Scientology against Psychiatry, I can't talk today. Uh, today my guest is one of my favorite people I've met recently uh, in the ex-Scientology community, uh, Ms. Glenda Smith over in New Zealand. How you doing, Glenda? Hi, Chris, I'm doing great. Yeah. You sound perfectly clear over there in New Zealand. I like the phone connection we have. Yeah, it's quite a long way between where you are and where I am. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, so how long were you in Scientology for, if I can ask? Oh, um, I was in 20 years. I was, I was not quite 25, but I was 24 when I got in, back in 1987. And the whole thing fell down about 20 years later. Yes, it was 20 years. Okay, so so how did you find out about Scientology and get interested in it? How did you find out you wanted to be in Scientology? Um, I was living in Christchurch in South Island here in New Zealand, and the girl that I was um, sharing a, a flat with, she found a an Einstein flyer in the letterbox, and she bought the box. She bought the Dianetics Modern Science and Mental Health box. And at the time, I wasn't wasn't seeking anything. I wasn't actually interested. But she read this book, and she became quite 
insistent that she wanted to try the techniques on me in this book. And looking back, she wanted me to experience it so that I would then use the methods, or what they call auditing, on her. Um, so she talked me into it, and I had this auditing in the dynamics book, from the dynamics book. Um, again, I was very, looking back, I was incredibly ambivalent about what happened. It's, you know, like, whatever. And But she became very thoughtful about it all. Now, somewhere in those early weeks, somebody from the Church of Scientology in Auckland telephoned her because she was now on their list of book buyers and it just took off rapid fire. They then, uh, it was probably two or three weeks later, they sent down some people from Auckland to Christchurch and there was this Dianetic workshop. Again, I was ambivalent. I didn't want to go. And I remember the morning clearly. It's one of those days you never forget in your life. Um, I had been um, doing some training to become a travel agent, an international travel agent, and I actually had my exam, uh, which is a pretty intense exam, on the Saturday morning of this workshop, and I, I said, I can't go, you know, I'm going to be exhausted, it's a three-hour exam, I, w- I just want to come home and sleep, and my friend, um, she went to the workshop in the morning, she rang me about, about 12 in the afternoon, she said, I'm coming to get you, and I said, no, 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 I'm too tired, I'm not doing this. And she said, she just said, I'm coming to get you, and hung up. Now, looking back already, she was being highly uh, manipulated, you know, that they wanted more people, and she was going to get me, and they were using her to get me. So she turns up at my house. I'm still objecting. I'm, I'm not coming. I am far too tired. I'm not doing this workshop thing. And she just, I think, she had one of the scientologists with her. I don't remember now. But she just wouldn't back down. And it was really weird to see her that way because normally she was quite a reserved kind of girl. It was just, she changed. So it's really weird. So uh, long story short, I ended up going to this workshop and that was it. Um, The phone calls kept coming from the Scientology organisation in Auckland um, and I think it was, it was only a matter of weeks, maybe four or five weeks. they recruited her, my friend, um, and I, and we travelled to Auckland and we spent six weeks full-time training. Um, the plan was we were going to go back to Christchurch and open a mission, and that is exactly what happened. Um, the full-time training is 9 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. I think we had, occasionally, we might have a whole day off at the weekend or a half day. Wow. It was more like, yeah, it was, it was just full-on and um, we did all the basic training, the, the, the communications, what they call PRs or planning routines training, the whole lot. They were, they were trained in hard. We trained on all of the staff training. We then apprenticed under somebody in that Auckland organization. Um, and six weeks later, I was a completely different person. Um, you've never seen such a shift in a person's personality in my behaviour, in my thinking, I was a full-fledged doctrinated Scientologist. You didn't notice it? Um, a very strange thing happened. When we got back to Christchurch, I'd had some of my belongings stored to a friend of mine, and we went to his place of work to organise a key so I could get my, my things. And I remember walking into the reception area where he worked, and he looked at me and he goes, Linda? 
and he sort of went backwards, but there was this such a sort of demeanour about me. I was I was so full of this intention that I was going to save the world using Scientology. And I remember him reeling backwards, and my girlfriend noticed it too. Um, so outwardly, even, I was behaving completely differently. Did I notice it? No, because the, the transition was done... Yes, it was intense. If you study something from 9 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night, it's intense. But it was done... The, the methods in Scientology are so... You know, people say the lower level stuff isn't, you know, um, it can be helpful and they say, you know, good things about it. But the lower level stuff is the root system or the foundation stuff to hold you to get through that pretty shop front stuff to turn you into a working, on purpose, highly focused, dedicated, fanatical psychologist so that you don't notice that it's happening to you. No, I didn't notice it. Um, my girlfriend, I remember her saying things to me like, wow, you're so changed. And Because you're so embroiled, like you don't see anybody else other than Scientologists at that time. That's really supportive. Um, so there's a lot of social cohesion going on to keep you there, and you, you don't notice that you're heavily changing. Um, but outsiders, like the guy that I'd left my stuff stored with, he noticed it. The minute I walked in the door at his workplace, he noticed how different I was. Okay. I mean, did you sort of kind of think? I get a little echo, but did you, did you sort of think that you were um, that you were just better, or maybe that's why it it changed because you were just uh, they were improving you? Is that something a thought that went through your mind? Yeah, that that was possibly definitely one of the thoughts for me because we were training for staff, um, and you know we had studied the, there's a, a foundational policy letter by by Warren Hubbard called Keeping Scientology Working. Number mm. one, series one. The whole series of policies about how to keep Scientology working. And the first one, I think it's about eight pages, it's, it's a very long uh, policy letter. And so our focus was on taking it to the world. Um, our, as trainee staff members, yeah, you do have some thought, hey, this is making me better and more capable and whatever. But mainly, uh, my girlfriend and I, our thoughts, and certainly my thoughts were, this is making me capable of taking this to the people and saving the world and concepts like that. So I was geared heavily for um, planetary saving, planetary clearing, as they call it. Um, and I was the, the conduit that it built. Um, it really came about the world more than it became about me. That's what makes yeah, absolutely. So, so let me ask you, um, KSW, I've heard it a lot, the Keeping Scientology Working. Where where in the process is that introduced? How, how far into uh, how far into you start in your training classes does that happen? As a person who was training for staff, it was introduced probably in week three. Week three. Once the, yeah, once the foundational communication course and how to study course. Um, there, were, there were a few sort of very basic courses that were, we, we did first, and then we had straight into um, the Keeping Scientology working stuff. So I'd been associated with the group about three weeks before I had to study that, and um, I 
I remember it took me ages because it's a long policy there and a lot of um a lot of concepts that really kind of shift you out of the normal world, out of um how you see the world as a citizen into seeing the world as in scientologist. Keeping Scientology number one is full blown, we're going you know, there's no turning back kind of feeling. And so a lot of people really struggle with it. My friend struggled with it. I saw other people in that course who struggled with it. Um, the first time through, it's sort of like being hit out of the head with a baseball bat but mm-hmm. for your own sort of feeling. You are now entering this massive tunnel that, that you know, you're not meant to return back from. And you just accept that. This is it. This is, uh, okay, I'm all in now. I'm all in and I'm just doing this. Is that pretty much your mindset? Not my mindset, but it's, it's, uh, looking back, it wasn't my mindset. It was the intense pressure and mindset around me from the people that were training us and the, and the, the other staff member. Um, you know, that they are turning their intention based on their training is that we are going to turn you into a Scientologist. We are going to turn you into, uh, you know, with this, this high intention, this high clear. There is nothing else in life but scientology. And I know to outsiders that sounds really strange, you know, because we're so used to having options and um, we take those options for granted too. You know, we'll, we'll shop around. So, um, but that isn't what it's like when you're training for this stuff. And like, there are no options. You, you, you are gonna, you are gonna be in this and you are going to be good at it, and you are going to be part of this. And um, it's done, I think, I think looking back, um, in a sense, a strong violation that I experienced once I woke up to what, what had really gone on, it's done without your consent. You, there's, a, there's a thing, undue influence. Yes, this is undue influence. Yeah, that's You're not aware of it. And do influence is huge, and this, uh, I think that's actually a big part of it. Because mm. uh, I was talking to Chris Shelton about that. I was like, we have to find a way, or law enforcement, law has to find a way to be able to regulate, you know, rogue religions that, that, that are cult-like. And uh, one of the things that's been used before, apparently, has been the concept of undue influence. Now, I'm not sure about applying it in, in, in legally, but it does. it is a big piece of what's happening here, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, I look at my own personal experience and what happened to my girlfriend because I was observing her and she was observing me. We had been flatmates. We had been sharing, you know, a place, a flat. And so we knew each other prior to this experience. We knew a lot about each other. When you you share it with someone, you do. And um, so we watched the changes. At one point, I remember her wanting to go home. And oh my God, you have not seen anything until you have seen how they, how the Scientology staff managed her, or we used to call it handle, handled her to stay. And I can actually still repeat what was said. And here it is. She, we, we were saying she was in tears. She, she, she just wanted to go home. She didn't want to keep training. She didn't want to do the Scientology. And this guy said to her, and he was like a real fanatical Scientologist in second generation. And he said to her, you can go home, but you've got to live with what you've walked away from here. And, and, and you're, you're participating in saving this world. You can go home. You're free to go home. 
that you, this is the most manipulative thing I've ever heard. He put a guilt but trip on her. Oh, times 100. No. You know, like, she, she could go home. He, he would even take her out to the airport. She could go home, but she would have to live with the fact that she was now part of the world falling apart, the world's, you know, demise, the world exploding in a big splat of insanity. She, but she could go home. I mean, manipulation, manipulation is the finest. So she stays. She stays. Can I ask what year this was? 87, 1987. Okay, so I've heard before, and I don't know how true, how accurate this is, I've heard something about the fact that they were trying to tell people uh, that we only got to the year 2000 to save this world. Is that something you heard in your inner? No. Okay, so I heard that from somewhere else. Okay, that may not be accurate then. I think I think these sorts of little um, button pushing things, whatever you want to call them, that, that you've just mentioned, can become a little localized. You know, like I was in the Australia, mainly in New Zealand, and a little bit associated with the Australian branch of Scientology. Um, and my observation now that I've been out ten years and read a lot of other people's stories and things, you, you do get slightly localized um, go buttons. Um, I can't think of any. We, we had weird little things that we would use down here that the Americans wouldn't know what we were talking about. So it does get a slightly local flavour, but it's only absolutely minimal. Um, most, like 99.9% of the stuff that you are dealing with is coming straight out of our Warren Hubbard's writing, straight out of his mouth, and is coming from international level in America, via the continent, from Australia in this case, and into New Zealand. Original thinking, I do think so. You know, there's no original thinking okay. in scientology. Right. So, so when you saw this happen, did you did you recognize that when you saw it, or only in hindsight that she was being manipulated to stay? Only in hindsight. Only in hindsight. Okay. And and you believe the person saying that, even though they're trying. I think that person's probably trying to save a stat, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Because he had he was actually the one that had recruited us. And the recruitment process involved a lot of um, like ontology is run on statistics. If you sell a bulk data with the statistic, if you recruit somebody that is everything you do is um, put into account into a stat. And he was the guy that had come to Christchurch and actually got the teacher Scientologist contracts out and got us to sign them. Um, we would actually sign them once we got to Auckland. But I remember I remember Signing my contract, we were on a, in a house. He'd come to this house where we were staying. We were sitting on the floor by a fireplace. I can still remember that what was in the fireplace. I can remember all the detail of it. And he was the one that had got the certificate for our for recruiting us to staff. And he was um, watching us like a hawk. You know, he couldn't he couldn't lose his statistics and everything else that was flying off of that. It was quite a, a huge move to recruit us and to send us back to Christchurch and start a mission. This, this is a big deal. This is really a big deal. So he, he didn't want her to leave, but he had to try and manipulate it and make it look like this fine. And, and remain bonded to her, um, remained her, her friend. Um, you know, this level of manipulation, there's a lot of... Um, the person has to... You know, that, that's what you're trained to become. You have to be the good guy but you're 
you know, actually focused on the cause, you're actually focused on the game, but you have to remain the good guy. So he was he was trying to be nice to her at the same time as he's trying to like pin her to staying and doing the training. It's um smutty. Yeah, I mean it seems like there's this stage of uh total belief, right? You totally believe in what you're doing, but you gotta make your stat and to make your stat you have to manipulate and I guess what I'm hearing a lot of people say and you'll probably confirm that is that the end justifies the means. Well, yeah, I'm lying and I'm being manipulative, but it's for your own good. Yeah, and it's good for the cause. For me, everything became about the cause, expanding and getting Scientology into broader society. Um, that was my absolute focus. Once I was trained after the first six weeks, that was my absolute focus. That was my first thought when I woke up. It was the last thought before I went to sleep. To sleep. And it stayed that way the whole time I was in Scientology. It was a complete focus on Scientology is the way to save the world. Um, it was the only way. And so when I, you know, every thought said that, um, you know, looking back in Scientological terms, um, and I say this with a little garbage because I, I don't like what happens at all, um, but they, they made me into a really good Scientology. It was really good training. You know, right. they, did, they did a good job on me. Okay. okay. So, so did you, is this, uh, when you were doing the, the church, the um, when you were doing your own unit here, that was before staff, right? You went from there to staff, or does this count as staff? I'm not sure how that works with the uh, with the is church that you in? go ahead. The basic training. Do you mean? Yeah. Um, I had I was contracted straight away um, to get that training without getting into all the um, how this works because it's involved. Um, I had become a staff member. We, we, I remember we, we flew from Christchurch to Auckland. I think it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday or a Saturday. Sunday, Saturday. It was a Saturday. And um, I was a staff member on Sunday morning. I had contracted for, I think it was a five-year contract. I was a staff member the next day. Okay. So how... How did staff look to you? When you look back at staff, how did that feel, what you were doing there? Because of the training, like the foundational concepts that, that were rolled up very fast, and every conversation, like we were manhandled with kids' gloves, we were kids' gloves, my girlfriend and I were kids' gloves all the way. They weren't going to lose us. They were going to train us, and they were going to send us back and start the session. So um, we were kind of almost um, monitored in a, in a kid-glove way. Um, no outside influences allowed. Um, you know, like if I wanted to call anybody from, you know, like my former flatmate in Christchurch, just, you know, like what do you want to talk to them about? It was just absolutely invasive stuff going on, but it was. You know, love, when, when you're being love-bombed, love-bombing love is, is um, delightful manipulation. Um, you're constantly being made to feel you are special. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, I now look back at my own and what was going on with me, 
um, you know, how to how to come to the point where it's that vulnerable to becoming involved in a very controlling, destructive system. Um, you know, if somebody's telling you you're perfect for this job and you're this is going to be wonderful, we're so lucky we found you, and you know, they just um, you know, it's like the most intense seduction. It, it, it just makes like dating seduction look like kids play. That this was intense. This was like you are being seduced to help save the world. And they're concepts that you don't run into in everyday life. So you're not prepared for that. You know, I, I've never run into anything so intense. And it felt good. You know, admission, it did. You know, I was brilliant. At, they chose me because I was going to be brilliant at taking this amazing Scientology stuff to the world. Um, there's something highly seductive about that. And I know for my girlfriend, it was the same. You know, like she'd just been this quiet little young woman who's a bit lost and, you know, she had insecurities and lacked confidence like many, many humans. And, you know, here they were telling her how marvellous she was and how valuable she was. And, you know, you, you did that enough the first few times and it pins you to it. And so... Yeah, it was um, it was a lot about yes, feeding the ego and feeling good about yourself, but it was something that was so much bigger than me, and something I'd never dreamed possible. You know, it was sort of it was looking back, it was surrealism. It was just so surreal, but it appealed, and I think it also appealed to the inner goodness that we will carry, to be kind, to want the world to be a better place. All those but you know they're not unique all of us would like the world to be slightly better and a greater place to bring kids up and so forth and all of that all of those go buttons will feel so yeah yeah so, so when staff seems like the place for me where uh, where you probably work the hardest for the least uh, it's like the most thankless job is it, is it not yes it is um Having said that, you know, that's not the material, you know, wages and um, you know, what we normally would associate with the job in, in the real world, but you get this, and again, it's the social cohesion that's going on with those around you, you get this sense of elevated importance. You get the sense of um, superiority. And you're trained. To, I mean, there are policy lists where I'll put a test. I don't remember the names of them now, but um, I remember it said the stuff, the final stuff says too, which is, you know, that early basic training. And, you know, you're now in the top 10% in the world and the whole planet. And this kind of lofty concepts are pushed into you. So you get this sense of superiority. This is the most important job. Not, you know, you're more important than the leadership of your nation. You're more important than anything that's going on outside the structure of psychology. You are saving the entire world. And I guess for outsiders, that sounds completely batty, and I actually think it is myself now. But when that seduction has been layered in and layered in so carefully, you really buy into that, that you're doing the ultimate role. And that if you try to walk away from that, so you do have a moment of self-doubt or doubt of the group or what you're doing, that is, that is, you either self-correct it very fast 
or it is corrected by the um, what is called effect uh, section. Um, you're not allowed doubt. Doubt is the enemy of, of a Scientologist, and you will do everything and anything to avoid that because you now think you are superior. You now think you have the only answers to the problems of the entire world. So yeah, that kind of holds you to it. So that doubt, that fear of doubt, is one of those things that uh, keeps you from looking on the internet. That keeps you from from associating with other people and 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 actually caring to find out any more than what you know because what you know is right. Yeah, that shuts down your analytical or critical thinking skills or ability to observe a situation in a broad sense. Doubt turns into fear. And Scientology is full of fear. Fear that you're going to lose your opportunity at your total freedom. Fear that you're going to be that person that doesn't contribute enough and make, you know, save the world. So fear is used as a, an intense form of um, manipulation and keeping you at the coalface, keeping you within that um, system. Um, as I, as I, when I, you know, very fast forward here, when I first woke up that I'd been involved in something incredibly um, dangerous and unhealthy and all those concepts, the fear was so intense. Now, what Scientology did for me, and I there are authors that write about this, and it's... Scientology actually installs phobias. You can actually install phobia and maybe human, i.e. we all know that if we react around spiders, around little children, we're going to make them scared of spiders. So right. we're going to be brave when we're out of spider, right? It's that kind of concept. So in Scientology, certain things that Elwon Hubbard wrote, you know, um, regarding the future of the planet and eternity and all these big concepts, um, he installs phobias. And one of them, of course, is about psychiatry and psychology. They are just evil. And so, so I was phobic about psychiatry and psychology. I mean, you know, just they were just evil. Um, I was terrified that if I left Scientology, I would die. I was terrified that, uh, and this is irrational. Yes, this is yeah. irrational. This is a phobia. I was terrified that my future, my eternity, not just, you know, 10 years down the line, but my eternity was going to be just unbelievably dark and like, uh, might use the word hell. Um, I was just full of fear. I couldn't leave Scientology because of the fear of, of my future, of what I might be, just the unspeakable, the abyss, all those horrible concepts installed into me through various policy letters and various um, things that I want to have said. So a lot of people, fear is the great, um, one of the key things that holds people into. Well, it certainly held me in all those years. If, if I ever had a doubt that I, this, is, this isn't working for me or this isn't comfortable or some sort of, you know, self-worth-based thought, the fear would kick in in about 10 seconds. I can't know. I've got to fix myself. I'll go and listen to a tape or I'll go and do some ethics work on myself. I was self-correcting all the time because of that fear. And um, it's a very internal mental problem system. Um, you know, you don't need compound walls. 
yes, there are compound forms involved in the Scientology structure, particularly in the United States. And in Sydney, there are um, CEO groups that are behind the compound walls. But most Scientologists don't need walls. You, you self-keep yourself on it. This prison wall that, you've, that you're trained to put up you know, the outside world and it is bad and you're, you're meant to just stay in your little tunnel or all things are on heaven. Wow. Wow. Okay, so... Are you, are you, you said something about you don't want to be the one that, that, that didn't pull your slack, that didn't uh, make the difference to save the world. Uh, was there like a competition between the, uh, I wonder, between the people in staff? Were you trying to be better than each other? Or did you guys work together? How did that work in there? Um, Scientology is quite hierarchical, I can't talk, um, and it is quite repetitive. Um, you do tend to look, or you tend, you do look at, particularly when you're sharp, um, if somebody's statistics are down, we would call that a down stat person. Um, you know, that, that, that's kind of looked down on, you know, that's sort of like a bit of an ethics problem, you know. So, you are constantly pushing yourself to have your production statistics high and monitoring the, the staff members beside you and your team members that everybody's pulling their way. So you're kind of um, driving each other based off some of what Aaron Hubbard had written, but it also becomes this internal silent language of ensuring that each other's you know, toe in line, that they're working hard. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very intense sort of, you know, imagine looking over your shoulder the whole time and, you know, metaphorically speaking, you're digging a ditch and you meant to dig out a hundred shovelfuls every day and you're looking over your shoulder all the time to check that everybody's, you know, doing that. It's a, it's a kind of, it's very slavish. You know, you, you yeah. Um, it's a, you know, looking at it now, you know, I've been out 10 years, looking at it now, I look at it as this sort of unique kind of mini-culture that strange things happen and, and you are driving each other, but it's, it's almost silently at times. You know, it's interesting how people will just do things, it's almost like a process of osmosis. And you don't know why you're doing things a certain way, but you sort of just pick it up from your environment, from those around you. You just know that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's, 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 you're not sort of even fully aware of it. Okay. It just to me, when I hear people talk about their experiences and stuff, it always reminds me of like a sales floor or a commission sales floor. <laughs> that's just mm-hmm. what I always envision. It is a bit like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, in certain areas, certainly like that, like people are selling books, what they call registrars or reaches. Right. And they're right on the sort of front line of money. And, um, you know, selling books and services and all of that, that that's very much what you're talking about, yeah. Okay, so you, I think you told me off the air you wanted to go to Sea Org, but you ended up in CCHR. How did that all come about? Ooh. Okay, so we did the basic training for six weeks. We, we went back to Christchurch and we did start a mission. And um, it was the only um, mission in New Zealand at that time, and it's gone now. It's not even a legal um, entity anymore. But um, 
I mean, I did. I wanted. I wanted more. I wanted to do greater things, you know. Well, it's kind of embarrassing to admit now, but anyway, here we are. Um, and so I wanted to move. The seal guy came to Christchurch, and there were intense discussions about me joining the Sea Wolf in Sydney, Australia. Um, at that time, and this is also like, as, as a um, non-Sea Wolf staff member, you um, have to pay for, it, it gets a little complicated here, but I had racked up a bit of debt to do my purification rundown, and because of that debt, that disqualified me to go to the Sea Wolf, to have to go into the Sea without owing without any death. And then the Auckland Auckland organisation wanted me there, and so I sort of settled to go to to a a higher org in Auckland. And um, so I got to, I I really wanted, every time the field missions would come down, I would always be working with them. I mean, that's crazy, but... I remember going out and doing red stuff with Sea Org members at Christchurch and in Auckland. I, I was very attracted to the Sea Org dedication, I think. Yeah. Uh, because my focus was so um, intense, you know, in saving the world using the Scientology method. So I was very attracted to, to the Sea Org dedication. Um, and, and on and off over the years, I did sort of toy with the idea of joining the field. And, you know, all I can say now is thank goodness it never happened. Right. Um, you right. Know, now that I know what was, you know, all I had was this sort of illusionary view of it. Um, now that, you know, I've heard the stories that many have left, and wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm humbled by, oh my God, the, the things they go through. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors and that's definitely an area. But, so I moved to Auckland and I joined the classified organisation there and I was a registrar and the debt caught up with me so I, I took some time out and I probably off staff for 18 months trying to, and I paid back the debt, you know, the money and I paid this debt. And then I went there was a quite a strong CCHR this is Constant Human Rights Unit in Auckland and um, one thing led to another and I became very interested in the work they were doing and I went and became a staff member in CCHR and to get into that um, because I'd left staff without finishing a contract I had to do special um, what they call an amends project and um, this is something that I don't normally talk about, but I will. What the heck could happen? Okay. Um, okay. CCHR in the structure of Scientology is actually in, run very close to its office of special affairs, OSA. And that's the intelligence branch of Scientology. It's, it's the area that handles the public relations. It's sort of the interface between the group and the big, wide, ugly world. Gotcha. And so in Auckland, they literally worked in the same office, literally. And the Oak staff and the CCHI staff. Interesting. And, yeah. So for me to get into CCHI, because I'd left, I hadn't completed the contract and that needed sorting out, I was asked to, um, and 
I, I was made to sign a document that I would never speak about this, but here it is. Um, are, you, are, you, are you okay to do this? Is this going to get you in trouble in any way legally? No. Okay. I, I was wondering why I was okay, but I, I absolutely not got to like people who are very Okay. So I was asked to interpret what squirrel growth. Squirrel growth is a bunch of a term that Alan Hubbard uses. Squirrel is a person who's using Scientology outside of the the standard Scientology growth. So they've sort of wandered off on their own and they're using Scientology and then it's meant to it's a violation of trademark, it's, it's um you know, it's it's the church doesn't see a dime. Sorry? The church doesn't see a dime, therefore it's a problem. Yeah. yeah. They've lost, basically, the church has lost control, and um, they stop like losing control. So there was some squirrels in Auckland, and they wanted to, the church wanted to know what they were up to. So I took on this fake identity, and, um, yeah, this is a church. I mean, I look at it now, and I think, what? Yeah. Um, and, and they, so I went along to the meetings and, and so forth. And, and then I reported back to uh, the local OSA what I had observed and had the right reports. Um, it was just totally surreal, you know. Did I lie and did I spy? Yes, I did. All right, I did lie and spy. Um, and so that was my amends project to join the CPHR staff. And... Um, what happened to that information that I put in on those people, the squirrel people? I don't know. Everything's so compartmentalised. I mean, you honestly don't even know what the person next to you is doing in that area. Um, what are you working on? You don't ask that. You don't ask, well, what are you working on? That's just, like, far too open. Um, so anyway, I joined CCHR, and that was done on a standard church Scientology contract. It wasn't... Later on, they did have to restructure because they... They try to keep CCHO as a completely separate legal entity, but they screwed up in this case. I was on a standard Scientology church contract. Interesting. Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of complex labyrinths involved in all this. And, but we were run on a day-to-day basis by OSA. Now, when I say we were run by OSA, I mean you did your work each day, counted up your statistics based on what the definitions of definitions of it was, and those figures and numbers and reports went to OSA, who then put it on the telex machine and sent it to Sydney, Australia by 10 o'clock that night. Um, you know, they, they say CCHO is separate. Really? No. That's not true. CCHO is completely part of the OSA network. It's totally it. Yeah, they did. They count up different production phones. But it all goes also. It doesn't surprise me at all. That, that, I, I feel that for years. That, that's sort of like saying, well, you know, Tuesday is Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday is Tuesday. It's just, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why they try to keep it a, a, a public relations issue. They do try to make it look separate. And it is here in New Zealand, and I believe it would be the same in other countries. Legally, it is um, registered as a separate named group. Absolutely, but the internal workings are completely run by. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And all that hoo-ha. Yeah, to the outside world, it's put up as a separate entity. This is CETA, this is the Church of Scientology, wherever. This is, you know, Narcan or whatever. But it's all, it's all being daily managed by Scientology or 
all that to international level in the States, in the United States. Crazy. So, what was it about CCHR that got your attention that made you want to be a part of that when you were when you were believing in, in everything? I think that actually looking back, and you know, I've done a lot of reflecting and a lot of people work since I left. There was something that had happened in my life prior to all of this cutting. And um, I had worked in an old country's home, and there'd been a lady there, cutting a long story short, she ended up in the local psychiatric hospital, and they'd given her electric shock treatment. And I'd known her prior to the treatment, and then I went to the hospital and saw her, and she was just a different. And it, I, I actually found something I wrote about that. I, I sort of write in the background of my life, all my life. And I'd gone to visit dear old lady, and she was so not there, and she was so full of fear, and it really impacted on me. And I did write about that. I, I still have that little piece I wrote about going back to see Thelma. And so I... I had a sense that there was a cruelty about psychiatry from this very limited um, personal experience. So the whole concept, which was, you know, again, Hubbard Wright started in general Scientology references that people are, are studying in the general courtroom, but the stuff that I was um, trained on as personal within CCHO was even more intense. Mm-hmm. That psychiatry was evil. Now that I know what I know, you know, Hubbard was, um, you know, the psychiatry didn't like his methods, you know, going back into the very early 50s when this was started. Right. And, you know, he, he was kind of, um, he was pretty anti anybody that didn't agree with him. Yep. He, he, you know, he would be that me done at this level, or he just, he just, you know, he really didn't like anybody saying no. And so he'd had this run-in with, with um, mental health people in the United States, and, and then again, some issues came up in the United Kingdom. And so he just kept, certainly around the 68, 69, um, which were this is the period of most of the references that we were trained in, um, heavily trained in. Um, and he, he just hammers the mental health associations and so forth and psychiatry. So that kind of really, because of this one very sad thing that I had witnessed with this darling old lady that I had cared for in rest home, it just sort of, you know, I, it just sort of made sense to me in my own crazy worldview. Um, and I think also, you know, none of this is black and white. I think you know, I've asked myself probably, literally, a million times. <laughs> Why did I do this? Why did I join? And what what was it about me that that made me vulnerable to this? What was this? You know, and that's, I'm the only person that can answer that question. You know, a million people can come up with a million different ideas, but it's actually me that's got to answer it. So the last ten years, I've really asked a lot of hard questions of myself, and one of them was my lack of sense of belonging, which went back to you know my own childhood. Um, you know, hands up who had a perfect childhood. There's very few. Very right. few of us adult a really cool childhood. And I'm not saying my childhood was bad. Um, I wouldn't, I couldn't say that. But there were really non-optimum things about my childhood as well, where I didn't feel I belonged, and I didn't have a sense of a strong sense of myself. 
and so something comes along and love bumps me and tells me I'm really important and I'm really valuable, I sucked it up like, you know, the cat, the cream. Um, so the CCHR thing was the next level of really focusing on what had been, what, what is wrong with this work. And of course, you know, the psychs are the reason that that everything's wrong in this world. That, that's what I was trained in. And I could actually go, this, this is the level of training that, that we were put through. I could take any situation, I mean, pick a situation in life, non-option, marriage breaking up down the road, a kid falling off their bike, a beggar, um, just anything involving human beings that was non-optimum. A bridge falling down, collapsing unexpectedly. I could then line that through to where psychiatry was, was involved. Wow. It was insane. Wow. So, so, we, 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 draw, we would draw that. So, so the psychiatry field somehow did something to make that bridge vulnerable or... They, they use some psychiatry psychiatry things and, and tools to suggest that doesn't need to be reinforced. Just any kind of excuse you can come up with. It, it, it's, it's this kind of um, filtered thinking, if you like, filtered, filtering a tunnel-like vision of taking. I mean, for example, a guy falls off a bike, right? Outside your home and raises his knee badly. I would have, it's quite hard for me to do now, just kind of um, undone all this, but, okay, so he's had an accident. So he's not fully aware of himself and his environment, and I would, I would use Scientology language around that. Oops, sorry about that. Thank God. <laughs> Go ahead. Are you right? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, and so he pulls up his bike, and... This is because he's dulled down because of a psych-influenced education system. He's possibly taking psychiatric medications. Um, I, I could have probably put four or five things on a simple thing like a guy falling off a bush. It, it was just... It's very hard to explain how full my head was with crazy content. It was just a lot. Okay, so that is part one uh, with Linda Smith. Next week on Friday, uh, we'll re- I will return with uh, uh, Glenda. There's a lot more to be uh, a lot more to be discussed about. Uh, she talked more about CCHR and some of their practices and the things that she didn't like seeing, uh, how she came to wake up, and how that affected her marriage. And uh, it's a pretty deep second part. Uh, Glenda is one of the most detailed, one of the most uh, thorough uh, representations of, of the uh, of the mindset I saw here in this interview and heard. And I really thank Glenda for coming on and doing this. She's a wonderful lady. Another another brave new voice being heard, which I think is wonderful. Uh, again, tomorrow is uh, tomorrow is number one hundred, and it's a hundred percent live. Uh, so tune in for that. Until then, stay connected, and uh, that about sums it up. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, 
and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mum and dad, don't talk to your mum and dad, that bad, yeah. run. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah.